G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. It is an undisputed fact that Jesus Christ has made an indelible mark on human history and he continues to do so through his followers. Yet lots of us don't realise that the values that we have in Western democracies like Australia originate in the life and teaching of Jesus. There are all sorts of issues like the equality of all people, things like servant leadership, the motivation that we have to care for the poor and marginalised. What about the dignity of women and children and education? Well, these might be towards the top of a long list of values that originate in the teaching of Jesus. Christian leader, social commentator and media identity, Carl Fays, whose production company is called Olive Tree Media. Well, he's been in production of a documentary and evidence and insights from visits to the UK, to the USA, Singapore and India, interviewing authors, academics and modern-day game changers about how the life and teaching of Jesus changed the world and why it matters. You can join in our conversation today on 1-800-316-316. Our talkback line's open. You might have a question to ask. You might have an insight to offer. 1-800-316-316 as we make a special welcome to Carl Fays. Hello, Carl. Welcome back to 2020. Hi, Neil. It's great to be with you and all the listeners today. Well, Carl, these documentaries, these resources are nothing new to you. You've got a whole list of fabulous uh, runs on the board uh, ahead of this one, but this is Jesus the Game Changer. Uh, Give us a quick, in a nutshell, expression of, of how your DVD actually presents the sorts of things I mentioned in our introduction. Neil, Jesus the Game Changer is, is actually filmed across the world, as, as you just mentioned in your introduction. So uh, many people think about um, uh, Christian series teaching on a particular issue like Jesus the Game Changer and think about, you know, long pieces to camera by the person who is the, uh, the person who is hosting the show because they become normally, uh, they are the expert. In our series, Jesus the Game Changer, we actually look to other people to give the information. So my role is as the host and interviewer and I go we basically went around the world as you just said and speak to the best people that we could that give us information so what you're watching is something that's more akin to a documentary than it is say a teaching uh, video and so it's it's shot on location in in uh, across America and the UK and India and Singapore as well as here in Australia we go to all sorts of different locations speak to an, a range of people 30 different people across the world and so as you watch it you, you each episode probably has between five to seven different guests the guests are probably from four to five different um, locations come nations and, uh, and and they give insight and so it's beautifully edited wonderfully produced with high production values so it's actually while it sounds complex it's very easy to watch and it gives insight to how Jesus changed the world and why it matters. 
Interestingly, Carl, when we talk about the sorts of values that we hold, uh, for those who are not especially religiously inclined, not especially attuned to the things of the church, there's this assumption somehow or other that the values that we hold as a nation, and I mentioned some of those sorts of things in the introduction, but there's this assumption that somehow or other they're accidental or they would have been there anyway. Uh, What are you talking about the influence of someone who's, Uh, now 2,000 years uh, since he walked on the face of the earth as a man. How do you describe that sort of idea that people sometimes have of all these wonderful things we have in Australia, that they're all here by accident? And and that's really why a guy called Oz Guinness, who's on our first series Towards Belief, but not on this series, actually talks about uh, nations like Australia and America and the UK, Western, liberal Western nations, as, as cut flower nations and he's saying that what's happening is that there's so many of these what the flower the idea of a picture of a vibrant beautiful healthy flower on a plant and we look at in a way a lot of our values are a bit like those flowers you know these wonderful values that we care for people that people are given uh, equal value within our community that education ought to be free that health care ought to be available we argue about how they should that should occur but the concept that it should occur is something that's widely accepted and what Oz Guinness is saying is that the cut flower culture means that we're cutting the flowers off from the roots and it's always interesting to ask so what are the roots of those ideas because that here's the issue is they didn't invent themselves and they're not a normal natural part of human nature and it and Os guinness's fear is as we cut the flowers of those wonderful values off from the roots and where they came from we're going to become a cut flower culture and where who knows what the future will bring and and one of the ways of of looking at this as we try to do within the series is to ask the question okay in the greco-roman world in the time of jesus at the time when the church first grew and first flourished what was that society like if you're a woman what how were you treated if you're a slave what were you thought of Uh, if you were in leadership how did you act what was kind of normal culture then and what is normal culture now and and what created the difference because in all the areas i just mentioned as well as many others there is a radical difference and the radical difference even from people who don't call themselves christians who look at history go the radical difference really is the life and teaching of jesus in the early church and of course a lot of people though and it's happening more and more today people who are revising history and uh, trying to draw attention to other movements and uh, humanist movements that somehow or other, uh, through the value of human reason, brought about all of these good things that we have. There are a lot of historical revisionists, and some people might say, aren't you just cherry-picking history to say, uh, that's your guy, that's your hero, that Jesus there 2,000 years ago, that somehow it's his values, but weren't there an awful lot of other people who had great values to bring as well? How do you actually see Jesus as moving out of the pack and standing alone? And, and well, one, uh, one example of that is a guy called Tom Holland, 
Now, Tom Holland released a, a, an article next, last year, July last year, so very recent. In fact, after we finished our series, uh, our series doesn't relate to this article. It's in a magazine called The New Statesman. Uh, for listeners, you can actually go online and, and Google Tom Holland, why I was wrong about Christianity. So Tom, Tom Holland works for the BBC. He's a, he's a well-known writer. He's an expert on the Greco-Roman world. He's a great fan of the Greeks and the Romans. And for many years, you know, wrote books about them, wrote books about how they thought, how they acted. But then, then he, he, he's changed his mind. Now, this, it's important to say, Neil, I don't think this is Tom Holland saying, now I'm a Christian. I don't think that's the case. That's not what this article is saying. But what he's saying is, I was wrong about Christianity. And he, he started to look more closely at the world that we've just talked about and the way they thought about people. And he says this, it was not just the extremes of callousness that I came to find shocking, but the lack of a sense that the poor or the weak might have any value at all, any intrinsic value. So here's Holland, as an historian, believing that, you know, the, 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 the French Enlightenment had, had an impact, that other thinking had an impact. And, and then he ends the article by saying this, In my morals and ethics, I have learned to accept that I'm not Greek or Roman, but thoroughly and proudly Christian. So what he's saying is an historian, looking at the Greco-Roman world, seeing how callous they were, looking at our attitude to the poor, the weak, the needy, and recognizing that care is a part of our community, he actually talks about Voltaire and says that these guys, the French and, and, and Italian Enlightenment thinkers, they didn't bring about the idea of equality or care. It was actually a, a Christian value that became part of the culture that these other thinkers came up with. Now, I've been asked the question, well, wouldn't we have come up with it anyway? Well, we might have, but there's places around the world where they think they have a different philosophical foundation to their community, and they haven't come up with it. Take, for instance, India, but we can talk about that a little bit later. But so anybody that's looking at this from a reasonable historical point of view, and not suggesting that the church has always been perfect or always got it right because the churches have done appalling things over the years. That's not the point. The point is that the shift in, in, in human thinking about in many of these areas came about because people responded to the life and teaching of Jesus. And of course, the way those things uh, translate into our modern experience here in Australia, when we talk about a Judeo-Christian heritage, uh, that Judeo part, refers somewhat to the Old Testament of the Bible. Uh, the Christian refers to the New Testament of the Bible. All of that revolves, of course, around Jesus Christ. Uh, when we refer to that, and I've heard leaders on all sides of politics uh, recognising this Judeo-Christian foundation that we've had in Australia, but there seems to be a lot of people trying to backpedal away from that, to try and separate themselves from the Christianity side of our heritage, and uh, they do themselves a disservice because they're ignoring the facts of history. Is that the case? I'm, I'm sure, absolutely. In fact, take take the idea that that all people have equal value. That, I mean, in essence, that's what democracy is built on—that everybody gets a vote, an equal vote. And if you're over 18 in the Australian culture, whether you're a university professor with three degrees or somebody who it wasn't smart enough to finish high school and is is on government benefits because that's your lot in life, when they go to the polling station alongside the billionaire they're all worth exactly the same same vote same value now we may not treat everybody equally in our society and there's a lot of discussion about what equality actually looks like but the concept that all people have equal dignity and equal worth and that's just a foundational concept 
of our society was simply not the case in the Greco-Roman world and not the case in different nations around the world now. Now, you, you ask the question, why, why do we believe everybody has equal worth? Well, the interesting thing is that's a Christian idea with Jewish roots, Neil. I mean, the, the, the Jewish idea of the Old Testament that each person is worth something because they have the spark of a creator God within them. And the intriguing thing is that the, the uh, American Declaration of in- Independence basically had, uh, uh, as was written Thomas Jefferson and, and others, John Adams is writing it, was basically saying th- this idea that all hu- humanity is equal is, is, is kind of obvious. It's, a, it's an obvious agreed position across, across humanity. And yet it's not obvious, actual, actually. And in fact, it does come from a Christian ethic. There's a Jewish, uh, Jewish um, oh, sorry, not Jewish, Israeli philosopher and and writer i just can't think of his name right now but he's actually reflected on the declaration of independence of the u.s declaration of independence and he actually says that concept within the declaration of independence that all people have equal worth is a christian concept and if you if you believe that that people are all created by god with the spark of god within them you end up with everybody being equal he said if you believe in creation if you believe in evolution you end up in a completely different spot. And this guy honestly says that we shouldn't talk about people being created equal. We should be talking about people as being evolved differently. And if you, think, if you push that to its nth degree, evolved differently, doesn't end up with equality. It ends up somewhere completely different. And so you, you, have, to, you have to look back and say, you know, what other worldview, other than the fact that we're created by God with the spark of God in each of us and every person, the greatest to what we would maybe deem the least, actually has equal worth. And as one of our guests says, serving the most broken, needy uh, individual within the world, that has dignity and worth because you serve someone with dignity and worth. That is a Christian idea. Helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Social commentator and media identity Carl Fays is our guest today. We're talking about his latest documentary called Jesus the Game Changer. Uh, interesting terminology when you put game changer in the title there, Carl, because uh, game changer uh, for a lot of people has a, a really intentional meaning. I mean, this is the pivotal point. This is uh, the uh, the one that matters most. Uh, Jesus, the game changer, truly uh, someone who has ushered in change. It's, it's interesting because uh, the, the title was my wife's idea, Jane, who's the producer of the series, and uh, she said a couple of years ago we should call it that. And ever since we decided, it seems like every time I read a paper or turn the, the uh, news on, everything's a game changer. Even our latest uh, energy policy is a game changer in energy. <laughs> and every now and then somebody asks me, so what exactly is a game changer? And it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a sporting parlance, really, saying that somebody does something in a, in a, uh, a sporting field which changes the game and changes the outcome of how the game is is kind of the trajectory of the game and uh yeah it's a it's a as you say it's a pivotal moment it's a shift in in what's happening and what's occurring and and it which is a great phrase um and we believe that jesus wasn't just a great historical figure or just a, a wonderful teacher and a nice moral example that jesus life and teaching was a game changer 
for the culture in which we live. And we enjoy lots of the ways the game has been changed. Let's talk about the way we might understand this a little more clearly. You mentioned uh, just a few minutes back uh, India is different to Western democracies. Uh, you know, if it was just a, a common sense uh, human reason thing uh, that you'd get these sorts of uh, principles and foundations in place, then everybody would have them. But it's not the case. What do you say is the most uh, compelling argument when we talk about the comparisons of other nations and the way that they've proceeded to uh, to form their own societies? A, a good way of talking about that question is, is two areas, both India and the Greco-Roman world. So especially on this question we talked about a bit before the break about equality and us thinking about all people having equal worth. If you go back to the Greco-Roman world, and we'll come to India as well, the Greco-Roman world actually believed in structural inequality. So the greats like Aristotle and, uh, and, and Plato and others actually didn't believe people were equal. In fact, they believed in structural inequality, that there was a slave class and they were less than everybody else. In fact, Aristotle referred to them as kind of almost a subhuman group of people. Uh, everybody wasn't treated equally because they were seen as being of less worth and that that was the way the world worked and that we shouldn't be concerned by that because it was almost like that's the structure of the world, that's the structure of society, and we play our part. Now, intriguingly, if you come all the way forward to today, people will say, well, you know, that was a long time ago, Neil, you know, 2,000 years ago, we've moved on from that. Well, you've only moved on from it in, in societies that have a, a Judeo-Christian ethic and worldview. So if you go to India with a worldview which is built around the Hindu philosophy with two key tenets. One is karma and the other is reincarnation. Now, you just, if we think about those two things, if you think about reincarnation, means that when you die, you don't just die or go to heaven you, you, or, or end up in, with the worms in the ground. You are reincarnated. How you're reincarnated, what you come back as, is determined by a thing called karma. And karma says... How you live this life will determine what your life is like when you're reincarnated. So if you think about that, if you come back in the Brahmin caste, the highest caste, the wealthy, uh, the, the, the educated, the elite, then what do you feel about yourself? Well, Neil, you feel a total sense of entitlement because you've earned your place. And if you look down to the Dalits, the lowest class, or the millions of people that are below that, under the caste system, you, you actually see them as, well, I'm not sure what they did, but they are living out their karma. Now, it's important to say here, it's not that I'm suggesting that everybody in India is uncaring and they don't care about people in need and they're, ter you know, they're awful people. I'm not suggesting that. What I'm saying is the logical conclusion of a Hindu philosophical position is that it creates structural inequality. And at its worst, people will say, well, I don't want to help someone further down the, the caste system or below the caste system, because if I do, philosophically, I'm messing with their karma, and they have to play out their own karma. Now, the intriguing thing is that even in our series, we talked to Vishal Mangalwadi, who's a Christian philosopher, writer, author in 
In India, we also speak to Josie Chako, who started a ministry called Empart, which is helping people, literally millions of people across India. Both of them actually talk about here is the outcome in a society when you believe in karma and reincarnation, and if you push Hindu philosophical thinking to its logical conclusions, you don't end up with equality. You end up with structural inequality, and you end up with a system that says, I don't even need to deal with or help those who are living out their karma. And that demonstrates that even today, that in, in, in societies around the world right now, that this ha- the, the idea that people all people are equal is a radical idea that doesn't work itself out unless you believe in a Christian worldview that says we all have the, the spark, the quality of God within us. And interestingly, as you're talking about other cultures, you're bringing in here something that's very important, Carl, and that is the idea that cultures are shaped by religious attitudes. Mm. And when we talk about Jesus, the game changer, we're talking about this Judeo-Christian foundation. It's a Christian religious attitude that's brought about uh, these real virtues in our Western democracies, and we're not seeing those same virtues in other religions. So we we get to a, a religious comparative idea here don't we because religion is ultimately all about how culture starts to form and the way things at work yeah it's, it's, it's the big ideas of the culture the the, uh, the kind of foundational assumptions that we all agree to and agree on and and if depending on your world view you end up with a cultural outcome in the way the society works and so you know and that's that that whole point point about evolution i mean what people don't understand is if you if you were to push evolution to its logical conclusion, you don't end up with a culture that talks about equality. And uh, so this this uh, Israeli philosopher is actually pointing out a, a great truth. I mean, there's some other people within our nation, yeah, um, a, a, a philosopher, uh, thinker uh, who comes out of Melbourne and is now working in America, Peter Singer. And Peter Singer says some says particular things that many Australians would find just almost repugnant that he would agree to that. And yet all he's doing in some of his his thinking is saying, well, if you believe these things, here is the logical outcome. And and what people don't understand is I, I want to believe this concept that, you know, it's it's okay to abort a baby within the womb because that's a woman's right. Peter Singer says, well, why don't we have infanticide, which means that we kill babies after they're born if they don't have the sort of, um, you know, rights, abilities, if, if they're not, if they're not um, okay enough to have uh, a full faculties of a human being, then we should, you know, get rid of them because it would save society a lot of money. And people go, that's a terrible thing to say. Well, his point is, you can't say one about abortion and, and, and basically logically not say the other. Now, there's, there's all sorts of debates about that, and I don't want to get sidetracked into that debate, but what you're saying is that the religious ideas of equality, of care, uh, they just didn't come about because they, everybody thought they were a good idea. They came about from a religious cultural foundation which shifted the way our society thought and the outcomes 
are the positive community in which we live in. Just a couple of minutes out from news, but a quick thought or two when we come to these issues of religion, because there's an interesting development, the rise of secularism, which is trying to push religion of all sorts out to the sidelines and silence anyone who has a religious foundation with the thought that somehow or other those things influence culture. The idea of secularism, it is in itself something of a religious Uh, ideology too Uh, and uh, so you can't really get away from a religious context can you no not not at all and in fact you you know the idea that um if i'm a if i'm a person of faith i shouldn't if i were in government i shouldn't take my faith into the cabinet room as if somehow that's a religious idea and that's negative but it's okay to take an atheistic world into the cabinet room because that's okay i mean that's logically that doesn't really work. And what's happening is that the, 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 the secularists, uh, the kind of, some of the modern uh, contemporary thinkers, um, are shifting religion from an irrelevant idea, you know, it's irrelevant, it's just, you know, for another age, to a dangerous idea. And as Paul Kelly, writer in the Australian uh, newspaper, wrote in July this year, progressives' ultimate goal is to take religion out of the public square. So if we prove that religion or we contend that religion is a dangerous idea, missing all the great values that it's brought to our society, if we prove that it's a dangerous idea, that gives us the right to pull it out of the public square and to make our society a more secular nation and therefore a more positive nation. And that actually misses all that faith and religion has brought to our community and actually cuts us off from the roots of these values. Just before we take a call or two, let's talk through some of these, and fairly briefly, I think, but uh, but give us an idea of some of the issues that we're talking about here, Carl. Uh, one of those is leadership. The way we think about leadership in a Western democracy that's shaped by Jesus is different to the way people think about leadership in other nations. Yeah, and certainly from Jesus' time, you, you remember that Jesus... Uh, said uh, uh, to his followers, you know, that the, the, the Gentiles want to, in their leadership want to lord it over you. And, uh, and as John Ortberg, uh, who I quoted earlier, said, if one of those Gentile leaders had heard Jesus making that claim that they, they want to lord it over others, uh, they would have said, exactly, of course, that's exactly what we do, because that's exactly the way le- leadership function. Yeah, this, this concept that Service and humility is a positive idea, which is what we believe now. I mean, we want to see that in our politicians, even if they're acting. <laughs> At least pretend that you're trying to serve the community. In Jesus' time, you, you, you weren't humble. You didn't humble yourself in front of other people. Only you humbled yourself if you thought someone was greater than you. Then you humbled yourself. There's a thing that called the Delphi Canon, over 140 Pithy statements of what a virtuous person would do. 140 statements about good values of a virtuous person. You know, Neil, that in 140 statements, not once is humility mentioned. Doesn't Mm. get a mention. And because it wasn't seen as a virtue, it was seen as a vice, it was seen as a weakness. It's not until historians tell us, after the, the life, teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus, who gave himself to all people, not until the first century after Jesus, historically speaking, do you find anybody talking about humility as a virtue in leadership. And yet now, even in the corporate world, we actually believe that it's a, that it's a value that people should live out.
In some sense, is this built into our culture in such a way that even when we think about, you know, the leaders of our nation, those politicians who assume levels of leadership, who govern by way of a bureaucracy that we call the public service, uh, do you think that's related to this idea of servant leadership, that we actually even have our our leadership bureaucracy called the public service? Oh, look, I would think so, because in a sense... You know, in in Jesus' time, which again, remember, remember, Western democratic nations grew out of that culture. It became part of our thinking. I mean, even the creation of a democratic nation came out of the thinking that that leaders ought to serve. Now, that's not always the church has not always done well in that area. In fact, in France, there's a a well-known quote of a, uh, an atheistic secularist thinker in France who, in the time of the revolution, basically said, I hope that the guts of the last bishop strangles the last royal. (laughs) Very unpleasant picture, Neil. But what he's basically saying is those two things sit together because in that culture, they were tied together very unhelpfully. And and the the church became linked with... with, um, nobles and dictators and royals who oppressed people. Yet at the same time, you have uh, Wesley and Wilberforce and the Clapham sect in England who are acting for the poorest and the weak and the lowliest. And in that situation, they are representing the life and teaching of Jesus. And that, that value became the value of our culture today, that leadership and democracy is about serving everybody, not about serving yourself. Uh, let's take a call or two. 1-800-316-316. If you'd like to join in our conversation today, let's hear from Graham in Tasmania. Hello, Graham. Welcome Hello. along. You know, God gave, when he gave the laws and commandments to Moses, they said, it said that uh, all these laws that will be given to you, when the nations see the laws and the statutes, what I've given you, they'll say, what great nation and what great wisdom that nation has. And we have rejected that utterly today. Uh, Graham, good thought in that, because this idea of righteousness exalting a nation, the righteousness comes back to Jesus the game changer. Your thoughts for Graham, uh, Carl? Yeah, Graham, thank you for your call and your comments. I mean, it's very interesting that there's lots of discussion about the separation of church and state. And, and in a way, I, I would agree with that, that we need to separate church and state in the sense that often when that was first talked about, it was actually protecting the church from the state, not the state from the church. And there ought to be a line between the two. But it's wrong to suggest that the values that were given to us, as you say, all the way back to Moses and the commandments, it's wrong to suggest that somehow those values don't have a positive influence on a nation. And the nations that have done best of those, and this is historically speaking, and there's even some research on this, uh, are those who have actually reflected values that come out of a Judeo-Christian ethic. Thank you so much to Graham from Tasmania. Let's hear from Shelby in Brisbane. Hello, Shelby. Welcome along. Uh, yeah, Carl, uh, Neil. Yeah, mate, my question is, and I won't sign a blank check, um, and I say to these people, well, you're not being kind, but my question is that they think that um, the Christian Alliance and everything that um, any of the ACL or the Australian Family Association say is a complete pack of lies, and 
um, you know, they, they simply say that um, we are avoiding the truth. <laughs> and, and, and I just find it hard sometimes to really talk to these people and say, well, you know, I'll bring on the last one. That they say um, they're gay babies, and we won't go into that discussion. And I say, well, the statistics from Dr. Uh, uh, Greer, when she studied 156 people, in two years there's only seven of these couples left. So that's way less um, success rate than what the normal marriage is, let alone that half them aren't Christians anyway. Well, Shelby, bringing into the conversation one of our current debates, and let's just pose this question for Carl, uh, because we have these debates that are going on at the present time, and uh, Shelby's making reference there to the current very heated marriage debate. The connection of the way that people will stand and say marriage is between a man and a woman, very different to the way that some people will actually uh, dispute the way that the foundations have been in place in Australia and and open to the idea that they'll change easily. Your thoughts on uh, the connections there, Carl? I, I want to just go back to what uh, Shelby was was actually starting with, if, if that's if that's okay, sure. Neil. And and it's very interesting that the whole idea about what is true. I mean, that's a really big issue right now. And you know, Donald, Donald Trump has made a lot of kind of. Uh, legway out of out of this concept of fake news, and then and social media tends to generate and push fake news, and it's very hard. It's not actually easy for someone like myself who reads the news every day uh, out of both major out, news out, outlets. It, you've got to read very carefully to work out is w- what's true here, and what's what's the difference between what's true and what's somebody's opinion. And I think what it says to all of us, uh, Shelby, I don't think that the Christian Alliance and the groups that you said can be written off as easily as people want to, because that's just a nice, easy way of getting away from some of the, the issues and questions that we need to deal with. But it does say to each of us who are followers of Jesus, who want to speak into the public marketplace, to be very careful about what you post, what you say, what you repeat, and make sure as much as you possibly can that's as accurate as possible so that we can't be easily written off. The trouble with research is that there's, and I quote research all the time, is that there's so much research out there and everybody, everybody, it's almost like, you know, what they say, there are lies, damn lies, and then there are statistics. I mean, it's it's a bit like you can almost prove whatever you want statistically or out of research. And, And a good way of trying to dismiss a Christian worldview is to do exactly what Shelby said and then just say, oh, it's just not true. We can't be easily as dismissed as that, and and in any issue we're talking about. But it's important whenever we put our our opinion forward that we're thoughtful about what it is we're quoting. And if you're unsure about it, for any listener, if you're just not sure or you can't check the, the validity and veracity of what somebody's saying, then don't don't use it to reduce the the the, the easily easy way that we're attacked as being untruthful. Thank you so much to Shelby. We're taking calls on 1-800-316-316. Let's hear from David in Adelaide in South Australia. Hello, David. Welcome along. Oh, good day. Listen, I was just ringing up about the separation of church and state, and a lot of people don't know the history of that. And that was about the state making a promise not to interfere in the church. It was a one-way separation. So it was never that we weren't to interfere or keep the government of the day in moral check. It wasn't that we should interfere in the, the you know, the pre-selections and all that rubbish, but, but, but it was 
to make was to make sure that the church, the state did not run the church, that we could hold the state to account. It goes back to a letter from one of the early presidents in the United States who wrote to the, the heads of churches giving them an undertaking that the government would not interfere in the running of the church. David, you make a great point there, and uh, just uh, throw back to uh, to Carl here to perhaps uh, reinforce even some of the things you were talking about with uh, regards to the separation of church and state. Some people like to think that means uh, the church should be quiet and shut up, uh, but that's not necessarily what that all meant. Yeah, normally when politicians say the church uh, should be quiet and shut up is when they don't like what the church is saying. Uh, and that, that becomes the issue. Yeah, in fact, if you even go back to the Magna Carta, uh, there, there's a whole bunch of places where the church, you know, the separation of church and state, and as David has rightly said, there's cases in America as well. But, you know, way back in, in uh, 1215 when the Magna Carta was signed, I mean, part of that was saying that there are limits on the, on the powers of the nobility. And that was part of a kind of limiting the power of the nobility, the dignity of the individual, and also in that process that the, the, there is the state has a role and the nobility has a role, but the church has a role. And both the church needs to be able to speak into the state, but it can't be controlled by the state. And I think um, that uh, I agree with that, what David's saying, and nobody should be badgered into silence by a politician suggesting that a separation from church and state means that we have no opportunity to have a say it's called democracy <laughs> we right. ought to be involved thank you so much to david from adelaide one 316 there may be time for another call or two but let's talk about uh, other really big uh, game changer issues and that is uh, education because we take it for granted that we have a wonderful education system here in australia uh, what's the connection here carl uh, well, to, it, to jesus the, the simple connection is that if unless you are wealthy um a wealthy part of society, uh, either in the Greco-Roman world or in the Middle Ages, you were not given an education. The, the idea that education should be for everybody was not an idea that was just a part of society. Uh, for instance, um, in this year, you know, 500 years since the uh, Reformation, one of the key letters that Martin Luther sent to the German uh, government was to say, Every kid ought to have an opportunity to have an education, and the church is happy to deliver that education, but we can't afford it, and you ought to pay. Uh, that letter is actually a key part of giving, key part of the process of every kid getting an education. If you actually go to India, um, there, there were the, the movement of in, India around William Carey as a, as a, um, a missionary into India, and he brought education for everybody and as Vishal Mengalwadi said to us that on the grounds of religion in India before that time women and children were denied education but due to the concept that everybody is equal everybody gets an opportunity and everybody should have the opportunity to read the Bible for themselves education for everybody came to India and it came because of the missionary and the missionary movement in India. And that's been the case. I mean, certainly if you go back to William Wilberforce and Hannah Moore in that period of time in the 17th and 18th century, the, the desperately poor of, of, of England did not get an education. Sunday school was actually not teaching, just teaching kids the Bible. It was school on a Sunday for kids that had no opportunity. 
and it grew radically to give them an education. People like Hannah Moore, a great writer and um, poet, a friend of William Wilberforce, started dozens of schools in her area of India, uh, sorry, of England, to give kids an education, motivated by the life and teaching of Jesus. And if you even go to the universities, the first universities, uh, Bologna in, in, um, in Italy, the, the, in Paris on the Somme, next to the Seine River in, in, uh, in Paris, uh, or Oxford in England, all began because people were studying theology as well as law and the natural scientists, and the first universities were started by followers of Jesus. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Our special guest is Carl Fays. His production company, Olive Tree Media, is behind a new documentary called Jesus the Game Changer. There is a, a website called JesusTheGameChanger.com and there's a number of resources that go along with this DVD. But before we, uh, before we end our conversation today, uh, Carl, uh, you mentioned opinions in response to one of our callers. There is a sense, isn't there, in which uh, in a day where fake news rules and everybody's opinion is being sought, a battle for hearts and minds, as I sometimes say, the idea of convictions that grow out of opinions, really this is where one of the strengths is of those who are followers of Jesus, those who understand the history Jesus, the game changer. Uh, Opinions are formed when they have relationship and when they have understanding of the way history has evolved. What are your thoughts on developing opinions? Yeah, that's that's true. And and one of the things that we need to work out is if we decide, if we say we're a follower of Jesus, uh, you know, where do our convictions and opinions come from? You know, and, and often what we do is it's, it's a hodgepodge of ideas, and mostly it's it's for what suits us. You know, and uh, as uh, Augustine has said, you know, if, if you if you uh, if, if you don't believe the Bible because of of certain ideas that you hold, so you decide which bits of the Bible you'll believe and which bits of the Bible you follow, because some are inconvenient. It's not it's not God that you believe in, but yourself. And we, we need to work out, so are we, are we looking at what the Bible says to us, or are we looking at, we're creating our opinions and convictions out of what is, what we feel, you know, works for us and suits us and fits with our community. Um, that just means we're going to be constantly shifting around on, on as, as community opinions shift around. We want a solid foundation with firm convictions built on clear understanding. Then we need to understand the Bible, we need to understand what Jesus said, and we need to kind of make sure that we're listening to people who teach the Bible well and listening to people that communicate clarity out of what the Bible is saying to us. Because if we don't, we're just going to end up, you know, as Augustine said, we're going to be we're believing in ourselves, not in the God of the Bible. Carl, a national campaign coming. So uh, listeners to our conversation today uh, expect more good stuff uh, when Absolutely. it comes to this, uh, describe what's about to happen. Well, well, what we're doing is we're encouraging churches between the 25th of February next year through to Easter Sunday over six weeks to do six weeks of the Jesus the Game Changer campaign. So your church can sign up. Uh, you'll get all the materials that you need. And on our website, there'll be training videos and um, uh, all the collateral for invitations and PowerPoints and prayer cards and, 
or everything you need. And what we really want to do is, is to encourage people not just to watch this for themselves, but to share it with their friends. Now, there's 10 weeks within Jesus the Game Changer as a series, but we're just going to do six, and you can go to the website and register your church. And if you register your church, you get a code, you get uh, all the material you need, plus a Vimeo uh, link, so you can stream it off the Vimeo site if you would like. And it's the opportunity for you to work together to influence your community with the information coming out of Jesus the Game Changer. Now, it's great if you can watch Jesus the Game Changer and influ- influences your convictions and your attitudes and gives you encouragement and, and, and strength, but it would be even better if there were people around you in your life that you could show it to. So your local church, wherever you are across Australia, no matter how small or large, get involved in this campaign. Show it in your Sunday services. Show it in, in any small group you have. Create the opportunity to go to a club or a pub and, and show this series and create discussion to influence our community right now because we really need it. And, of course, in that period in the lead-up to Easter, a lot of churches are looking for a great program by which they can help to uh, help shape people's understanding and strengthen their faith. So pointing people to JesusTheGameChanger.com and, of course, you can get a hold of the DVD at the Vision Store. Just go to vision.org.au and uh, you'll be able to find a copy of Jesus the Game Changer in the Vision Store. Uh, Carl Faze, always good getting your insights into these things. Another quality production that you've come up with and uh, I'm expecting that uh, we'll get some good feedback from listeners and uh, certainly all the best as people uh, undertake a study series in that because there are, just quickly, uh, some resources that go along with it uh, that enable people to do these great studies within their local church. Yes, and you can, you can get a dis- discussion guide, or you can get a paper discussion guide, or you can actually get that discussion guide for free on iTunes or Google Play. So on your, on your phone or your device, you can actually have the discussion guide for free. So just go to iTunes, Google Play, download it onto your phone, and you've got the whole discussion guide, which will help you in discussing and looking at Jesus the Game Changer. So JesusTheGameChanger.com, and uh, you can also get a hold of the DVD in the Vision Store. Go to vision.com.au. Uh, .org.au and uh, you'll be able to click on the link there. Carl, thanks so much for joining us today on 2020. Wonderful to be with you. Thank you, Neil. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au And remember, Vision is listener supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.